What's up, Internet? You're tuned in to episode 26 of the Video Game Pals, the Pals Network's weekly video game podcast where a group of lifelong gamers get together to talk about video games, the news, and how it all makes us feel. I'm your host, Pete Bessie, joined today by my ever-present co-host and antagonist, Mr. Andy Brown. I'm here to tell you that water Pokemon are trash and all your favorite things are garbage. And I'm here to tell you that Andy's trash and the Guildmaster himself, Mr. Sean Bartley. How's everybody doing this week? Good. Well, you know, living the dream. Unfortunately, Thompson uh, was not able to join us this week, as you can see, but uh, we've got a packed show this week, so we're going to jump right into it. But uh, before we do that, I do just want to tell you guys real quick where you can connect with the show. If you guys want to let us know what you're playing this week, give us a random question of the week, or just say, hey, you can write in the show at the video game pals at gmail.com to hear your thoughts right on the air. You can also follow our sister show at the Comics Pals, wherever your social media is sold, to stay up to date on all the stuff we've got going on here at the Pals Network. And if you're an audio listener, we would greatly appreciate it if you guys would give us a like over on your platform of choice. Uh, or if you really want to help us out, you can bounce over to iTunes, where we are currently a five-star rated podcast. Give us another rating. And uh, if you're on YouTube, you can do us a solid and like this video. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And uh, check out our daily Let's Play show, Pals Play, with me and Thompson. Uh, we're still working on Until Dawn. We've got um, one more episode to go this week and then one more before the month is over. So that's two more. I don't know why I said it that way. But... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, last but not least, the best thing you guys can do if you want to help out the show, the channel, is to share it with your pals so they can become our pals, too. Let them know that you like what we're doing, that we're out here, that we're doing it, and uh, see if they're interested. Wait, so, Pete. So? Oh, okay, what? Important question. <laughs> Hit me. Who usually runs the controller on Pals Play? It depends on the game. Okay. Okay. Because when you're running the controller, they should really call it Pals Can't Play. Oh, got him! <laughs> This is this is one of my oldest and dearest friends. This piece of trash. This is what I have to deal with. Listen, I just wanted to pull out the oh got him. <laughs> I'm sure you understand. <laughs> it's I'm contractually obligated. Like yeah, it's, it's what like, I have to do with this. That point. was for those of you who didn't um, watch our old channel Slack and Slash. That was part of my contract, and they just <laughs> bought it out when they moved me over to the Pals Network. <laughs> So it's just, it's just it's ongoing. It's a legacy thing at this point, really. <laughs> we all know how much people love legacy shit, so. Yeah, it's like, gotta get them legacy skins. <laughs> Alright, so before we get into the news this week, uh, we've got our rotating segment, and uh, I've got a buy or sell for you boys. Alright. I wanted to ask you guys, season passes or loot boxes? Can I pick a handgun with one bullet to shoot myself with instead? <laughs> no, I figured usually when we do these buy or sells, we pick... Two things that we really love, and that it's so hard to imagine a world without them. So this time I figured, I'm going to ask you to pick the lesser of two evils, I guess. Season passes. Because with the season pass, you generally know what you're getting. And, like, when you get the season pass, you get all the season pass content. And not like, oh yeah, I sunk $500 into season passes, and I didn't get that Lucio <laughs> skin I wanted. Right. <laughs> what about you, Sean? Hmm. <clears throat> uh... I think definitely season passes because games that typically have season passes are games that are guaranteeing you X amount of content over time, which you can bank sure. on. The, the content's going to come. Um, and so that's pretty cool. It's It tends to be more uh, efficient financially to get the season pass than not. Uh, obviously, it's more money up front, but if you care about the game then you'll spend that money anyways. Whereas with a loot box, you know, it's, nothing's guaranteed. So I don't care about games, so what should I do, Sean? 
if you don't care about games, then <laughs> loot boxes are great. <laughs> uh, if you don't care about games, I, I wonder why you're watching our show. I mean, I appreciate it, but are we really that that charming that you'll listen to us talk about shit you have no interest in for two hours? Yeah, I mean, I listen to you and Marco talk about Riverdale. Oh, got him! <laughs> Sorry, that's two... I'm just like, that's the kind of mood I'm in today, is shitty, mean jokes. Oh, good. This is what I have to look forward to. Uh, so for me, yeah, I'm also going to have to give it to Season Passes. Uh, and for me, it's it, it's less to do with like the content itself, and it has more to do with the fact that I feel like Season Passes are often a lot less intrusive in a game. Like People love to like cry foul about them all the time, but like nine times out of ten, I don't buy a Season Pass and have a perfectly complete experience with a game and don't have no interest in getting the shit that they're offering. You know, like, I don't need DLC eight months after the game's over and I'm done with it, or cosmetic shit for a game that I'm only going to play once or whatever. Like, I don't give a fuck. So I love those because I feel like they're generally a lot easier to avoid or pick what you want a la carte, whereas, you know, I, you know, I... We talked about it ad nauseum in the last couple episodes, right? Like, loot boxes are just, they piss me off. Like, I don't want to roll dice to get random shit. I want to just get shit. So, easy pick for me. Fair. So again, if you guys want to write in with your own random question, remember you can drop slime at the video game pals at gmail.com and you save me about 10 minutes when I'm putting the show together. So, do your do your uh, public service this week. Pete doesn't want to think, guys. So, uh, <laughs> do his job for him. Exactly. If you want to record yourself having a third of a conversation about video games, we'll just edit Pete out because, you know... <laughs> I'm just going to edit you out for the rest of this episode, all right? I think it's just, this is now the Pete and Sean show. <laughs> Sounds fun. All right, so I guess that means it's time for... The news! The news! We talking about the news! The news! The news! We talking about the news! All right, so we've got a fucking stacked news list this week. There are eight items, but some of them are really meaty, so let's just get right into things. So to kick things off, uh, we've got some updates around some of last week's biggest stories. Uh, so to start it off, we got a small update around IGN's acquisition of Humble Bundle. Since the announcement came last week, IGN has since posted their review of A Hat in Time, which is the first Humble published game since their acquisition of the company, with the following disclaimer. Disclosure. IGN Entertainment, IGN's parent company, recently purchased Humble Bundle, the publisher of A Hat in Time. This technically makes us the publisher. We didn't actually, and then they have a parenthetical. We didn't actually know that about this, uh, we didn't actually know about that when this review was being written. Humble Bundle and IGN operate completely independently, but going forward, all Humble Bundle published games we cover will have a disclosure regarding our relationship, and we will endeavor to use freelance critics to review them when possible. Hmm. So... Um, before we, like, offer our own thoughts, there was a, a little bit more I wanted to just give some context here. So, uh, Greg Miller, who's, um, from Kind of Funny, you know, my favorite podcast network, I've talked about them a ton on this show, um, he went to Twitter to basically say good on you, IGN, about, about this disclosure, and he got in a conversation with Total Biscuit, uh, who's a YouTuber that we brought up a few times because he's been very vocal and active, uh, in trying to, um kind of expose what he sees as, you know, the the problem with loot boxes, right? That they're gambling, that they target people with addictive personalities, that they're marketed at children, um, that kind of stuff, right? So he, he's been involved in that kind of shit. So he's definitely kind of a watchdog for a lot of publishers. And he kind of chimed in here and, um, and offered his thoughts on this, which I thought were pretty interesting. So like I said, uh, Greg tweets a screenshot of this with good on you, IGN. And uh, Total Biscuit responds... 
this is fine retroactively, but shouldn't be, but they shouldn't be covering games their company published at all going forward. And then next, you know, I'm, I'm just going to read his voice because it's across multiple tweets. When Greg chimes in, I'll tell you. So John then goes on to say, that's beyond disclosure. That disclosure is not on Metacritic, etc. It's a potential legal issue at that point. And then Greg responded, interesting, what's a legal argument? Sincere question. I know that there's no tone on here. Um, then John goes on to say, FTC disclosure of pre-existing business relationships must be unavoidable. Metacritic publication would avoid that disclosure. And the responsibility isn't on Metacritic to put it there. It's on IGN. We've already had this happen on YouTube. Since IGN is the biggest contributor to Metacritic, Metacritic aggregation in the gaming space, it's an issue. It might be worth asking at Mr. Ryan Morrison, see if I'm off on the mark here. Uh, they have dinged bloggers for far less, however. So... I, I thought that was some interesting points. There were some people who also chimed in to point out some other stuff uh, that were like kind of, I guess, pointing out what they saw as hypocrisy in John's line of thinking. Um, at El Nico Rico, who's just a Twitter user, said, uh, IGN is also a Disney partner. Should they not review any Disney media because they appear on Rotten Tomatoes? I get what you're saying, John, but I think you're way off base. IGN can't be held accountable for a third-party site like Metacritic. Also, LOL, Metacritic is an own, is owned by CBS, yet they have reviews for CBS properties. Also, GameSpot and Giant Bomb are owned by CBS. I don't see any disclosures on Metacritic reviews of CBS shows. Seems far more malicious than an explicit disclosure on an IGN review. With all that laid out, I know that's kind of a lot to unpack, but what do you guys think about this? Do you think that this disclosure from IGN is enough? Do you think that they handled this as well as they could? Uh, do you see this as being a legal issue, or do you think Total Biscuit is maybe being a little overly cautious uh, in his role as ever-vigilant watchdog of the game's uh, world? So, I'm torn, much like 90s singer-songwriter Natalie Ambruga, <laughs> because I really, like, I appreciate the stuff that Total Biscuit's doing in, like, the loot box space in terms of, like, calling people out for shit, but I think this is just so far off base. Just to clarify, you mean he's off base? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think he's way off base. I don't think the analogy he's trying to make is right. Um, the Twitter user that you quoted, Nico Rico, was that his name? Uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. it was like Nico, uh, whatever. Yeah, rewind whatever. two seconds and hear what I said. Sorry. <laughs> um, But uh, that Twitter user is absolutely right. It's like, oh, should they not publish Disney stuff? Should they not, you know cover cbs shows on metacritic and like ultimately it's not ign's job to make sure metacritic you know puts their disclaimer on there and like as long as they have that disclaimer on all the reviews they publish of those games that's fine what about you sean uh, i think i think this is a case of uh total biscuit just looking too deeply into something that's nothing um these are video game reviews this isn't like the stock market this isn't insider trading I think that he needs to chill out. They they are going out of their way to make sure that people understand what has happened. Uh, and, I mean, they even said they're going to try to hire freelance writers to do the reviews whenever possible. I mean, they're doing everything they can do. Should they not shine a light on Humble Bundle games? Why? How is that better? I, I don't understand how that's better because... Those games should have attention paid to them. IGN is one of the biggest reviewers out. Uh, it would be weird for them to not review those games in any way. So I just think he needs to relax, and everybody needs to relax. 
Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you guys on this one. I think to Andy's point, I definitely appreciate where uh, Total Biscuit's coming from. I think that, you know, you you don't need to look any further than the example of what's going on with loot boxes to see um, the way shit like this can go south, right? That, like, maybe it's not a problem right now, but if in 10 years the new CEO of Ziff Davis, you know, replaces everybody that's currently at IGN and there's a different... Uh, you know, like in this totally nightmare scenario, this could lead to some bad shit. But the reality of it is that how much would have to go wrong for that to be the case, I think is unrealistic, you know, and I think ultimately we have to put the faith in the people at IGN. And, uh, and then again, like that they are being transparent here, right? Like, they did have make this disclosure, they said that they're going to go, they're going to make an effort to find freelancers to do this work instead. So it's not somebody who's directly tied to IGN. Um, I, I think that's really the best they can do. And I think, to your point, Sean, I think not covering these games or doing anything else would be um, extreme. You know, like, I totally get why, like, the, the journalist in me, you know, the, the journal, like, I can, the journalism school red flags are definitely, like, I get why this would be, um, why this makes people wary, but I think ultimately, like, you're right, Sean, at the end of the day, like, these are video game reviews, and I think if IGN is, like, you know, giving, even if they were, right, gonna be like, oh, we're gonna give everything, like, an extra point score or whatever, because we own it and we want it to sell better, like, you would see that. You would see that based on everyone else's reviews and be like, why is IGN the only one giving them a positive review, you know? So, I honestly think that this is an easily self-corrected system, despite the fact that they're already making an effort to, uh, to, you know, fix the problem as best they can and be as transparent as possible. Yeah. People just assume, are so ready to assume the worst. Uh, and again, I don't think that this is even being talked about if it's not IGN. So just everybody relax. Yeah, because I, I think a great point to that is like there was a controversy around the similar issue when uh, GameSpot decided they were going to do publishing games with Game Trust, And they're like, oh, what about Game Informer reviewing those games? Because GameStop owns both of those companies. But it wasn't the same level of controversy. And I think you're right. And ultimately, I think that's what you need to think about here is it's very similar to the GameStop thing, which is that when you look at IGN, like I think people think of IGN as IGN.com. And IGN Entertainment is a much bigger uh, company than that now. You know, IGN isn't just IGN.com. IGN makes some of the most consumed content on Snapchat. They have a show that they're making for the fucking Disney Channel now. Like, they're they're a multifaceted business that does things beyond video games journalism. And I think as long as IGN.com has its own, you know, standards and has the right kind of journalists at the top of that ship, that you don't have to worry about this kind of thing. Yeah, and like, <clears throat> excuse me, I I feel the same way to go back to like, the the argument being made on Twitter at John, where at the end of the day, it's like the games industry isn't the only place where there's corporate mergers. And like, I don't know, there's a difference between games reviews and like White House political reporting. Right. And and even just like games journalism in general, like a game review is not journalism. It's a review. Right. And, you know, like, so Disney owns, you know, Disney Studios, Disney owns ABC, the television company. Should ABC, like, local ABC affiliates not have their film critics talk about whatever Disney movies coming out this week? 
Right. It's just like that doesn't make sense. Like, and I think it's with bringing up the movie thing that actually spurred a thought in me. Um, on kind of funny games daily this week, they were talking about about this, basically kind of responding to the conversation that Greg and, and Total Biscuit had had. And one of the things that came up was like, this is only a problem in the games industry too. Like, we are hyper hyper obsessed with like ethics in games journalism lol but i just you know like we care so much about where the copy of the game you got came from and like oh like you got a copy from them i bet that means you're colluding like nobody ever accuses film critics of like doing the same thing when they get advanced tickets to go see a movie a week early so that they can write a review about it like nobody holds them to that same standard nobody complains about comic book uh, reviewers getting copies of comics early you know it's really funny to me too that like the ethics in gaming jur- gaming journalism people like have all these conflict of interest things but don't seem to have a problem with the fact that a lot of games journalism feels like paid publicity for the big studios. Back when the whole Gamergate thing was going on, the same time yeah. that was happening, um there was a big deal about Warner Brothers like threatening YouTubers who mm. gave Shadow of Mordor a bad review. And nobody mentioned that. It was all right. about like, oh, there's these personal conflicts of interest. And it's like, we don't trust games reviewers to be professionals and tell us what's good. And like, honestly, that whole thing was so like, it's 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 fairly baseless, man. And like, when you look at the reality, like the history of games journalism, like the roots of it are basically PR. Mm-hmm. You know, like the early days of games journalism were basically that traditional media didn't take video games seriously, so fans and independents decided to fill the the need for that content, and it, all it essentially was was like, oh, we got press releases, let's talk about the press releases, you know, and like, and then games reviews, and, you know, I, I don't know, man, it's one of those things where like, I feel like people are they're so reductionary about the talk about games reviews, right? Like saying like, even to your point, Andy, right? Like the idea that like most games reviews feel like ads for games. And like, I think you can make that case, but I think a lot of the the things that are used to make that case are largely like bullshit. Like one of the things like I remember like, you know, we're fans of a YouTuber Dunkey, right? And he has a whole video about games reviews and how they're bullshit. And one of the things he points out is like, oh, here's this article from IGN and they're tearing apart this game and then they gave it an eight. And it's just like, yeah, but what he's doing is for comedy. And like, it honestly is very like disingenuous because if you read the entire article, it says predominantly positive things and then problems with the game which is why they gave it an eight which is the very very line against being good or great versus a nine or a ten which is that it's fantastic or it's a classic or whatever and like i think like like we are so focused on what the number is that we don't read the three thousand word review and look at the context of it and then people also want to be like oh ign gave this game an eight not you know Alana Pierce, who writes for IGN, gave this an 8. And then that also ignores the whole context of, like, well, what kind of games is that person like? Did they pick this person to review this game because they're super into JRPGs and they're going to give the JRPG a better score than the guy that's the average gamer that maybe doesn't feel that way? Like, there's so much around that conversation that doesn't get properly explored because people want to jump to the thing of, well, fuck IGN. Yeah. Or, well, fuck GameStop or, or GameSpot. Well, You know what I mean? In defense of the people who are like, well, fuck IGN. IGN in particular 
tends to do, I think, the worst job of slotting reviewers to games they can review on the merits of the game, not on the merits of the genre. That's that's the criticism I have of IGN is like I've seen a lot of like and y'all know me out there. I play the niche stuff. I play JRPGs. I play tactical games. And a lot of people don't connect with those. And I've seen so many like particularly IGN reviews or walkthroughs or let's plays just like totally miss the mark because the person doing it wasn't interested at all in the game. Right. And like that's that's a problem for an organization like that. Like, if yeah. you don't have somebody to do that. What are you doing being as big as you are without having someone to do that? <laughs> yeah, or like not finding the right freelancers. Like, But to me, right, like that's a different conversation. Oh, that's yeah. not an issue of like collusion or poor ethics or anything. Right. It's like that's just you and not being in line with the people that are reviewing at IGN. People like really care about the scores and the numbers, which – is whatever, but nobody seems to ever pay attention to the, like, the score inflation. Yeah, I think, and I think, I think that's, that's, because, like, you know what that reminds me of? is like, I read, you know, S- South Park Stick of Truth, yeah. Truth came out last week, right? And I remember I read the Polygon review, and he gave it a 7, right? And a lot of people were, like, upset about that. And he has the disclaimer at the beginning where he's like, I don't really like South Park, and I haven't watched it since I was, like, 18. And it's like, okay, so why are you reviewing a South Park game then? You know, like, why is this the person they chose to review that? And not to say that there isn't something interesting to be said about, hey, I don't really like South Park. I'm playing this from just a game play perspective. And, like, I think that that's an interesting opinion to have. But is that the guy you want to do your marquee review? And and I don't know. Maybe that is what Polygon wants to do. But I think, like, these are the conversations you need to have and not just be like, oh, Big games reviews are all bad, and here's why. Yep, because it's it's re- it's reductionary. Absolutely. The reason the reason why uh, you know that's the kind of commentary is because people aren't putting the effort into being intelligent about the conversation the way that you guys are. You guys are spending way more time talking about this intelligently than anyone else is because the people who are who care about shit like this are stupid. This is a dumb thing. If you, it, it, like, who cares who reviewed the South Park game? Honestly, like, it doesn't matter. If you're going to buy it, you're going to buy it. And if you're not, you're not. If the review affects you that much, then you need to look at how much impact other people's opinions have on you. Who cares? Honestly, I would rather see the review from someone who doesn't like South Park than someone who does. Because I don't want someone to review it on the merits of South Park. I want someone to re- review it on the merits of the game. That Those are not the same thing. And when it comes to uh, IGN, everybody on that website is toxic. So I don't care what those people have to say. It doesn't matter. When they review something and they review it well, they got paid off. When they don't review it well, it's because uh, they put someone, they put the wrong person on the review. Or because they don't like that publisher. Or whatever. Like, there's everyone has an opinion. And they're all dumb. Because at the end of the day, IGN themselves is not thinking about these things. They're just trying to run a website. Yeah. Just to clarify, when you said that everybody on that site, you mean like people in the comments are toxic, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to make that clarification for the listener, you know? Um, yeah, uh, and I, I think I think that there's some merit to that. And I think um, 
I, I do think that like the amount of people on the internet who are wholly convinced that everyone in, in games journalism is like on the pay and gets paid off and lies for their friends or whatever is like shocking to me because it's just like based on every single person from every outlet I've ever heard talk about this subject, it's patently not true, you know? So, and unless you like believe that every single person in games media is part of a massive conspiracy <laughs> to like cover up this lie, like that's stupid and naive to believe that, frankly. Hey man, I believe that. Well, you're stupid and naive. Wow. But we knew that. There's no excuse for you. Uh, Pete, <laughs> I believe the phrase you're looking for there is mandated in my contract. Ooh, got him. <laughs> All right. So uh, another update, update from last week's show. The UK government has responded to the ongoing loot box controversy that's dominated the conversation around video games as of late. So this uh, comes from Eurogamer. Vic Hood wrote this article. He's He's got a little co um, context here I'm going to include for you guys, and then I'll read the statement. So the UK government has responded to concerns surrounding video game loot boxes. Over a week ago, Daniel Zyker, Labour MP for Cambridge, submitted two written questions on behalf of Reddit user and constituent Art Funkel. <laughs> That's a great name. The questions addressed to the Secretary of State were as follows. To ask the Secretary of State for digital, culture, media, and sport. That's a mouthful. Uh, what steps she plans to take to help protect vulnerable adults and children from illegal gambling, in-game gambling, and loot boxes within computer games? And then the next question was, to ask the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media, and Sport, what assessment the government has made of the effectiveness of the Isle of Man's enhanced protections against illegal and in-game gambling and loot boxes, and what discussions she has had with cabinet colleagues on adopting such protections in the UK? Uh, and this is back to the article. Tracy Crouch, Parliamentary Undersecretary for the Department of, for Digital Culture, Media, and Sport, has responded to these questions on behalf of the government with both questions receiving the exact same answer. Quote, the Gambling Commission released a uh, position paper in March 2017 detailing existing protections in place for in-game gambling, virtual currencies, and loot boxes. Where items obtained in a computer game can be traded or exchanged outside the game, the platform they acquire a monetary value. And where facility facilities for gambling with such items are offered to consumers located in Britain, a Gambling Commission license is required. If no license is held, the Commission uses a wide range of regulatory powers to take action. Protecting children and vulnerable people from being harmed or exploited by gambling is one of the core objectives of the regulation of gambling in Great Britain and a priority for the government. The Gambling Commission have a range of regulatory powers to take action where illegal gambling is taking place. Earlier this year, the Gambling Commission successfully prosecuted the operators of a website providing illegal gambling facilities for in-game items, which was accessible to children. The first regular, the first regulator in the world to do, to bring such an action. Uh, the government recognized the risks that come from increasing convergence between gambling and computer games. The Gambling Commission is keeping this matter under review and will continue to monitor developments in the market. Um, so th then it just kind of the rest of it is just like the rest of the article, which you should go check out. Vic had, uh, did some good stuff here. So I'll link to down below the rest of our news stories. But uh, so this is interesting to me because, I mean, obviously this is like a non-committal non-answer, but it shows that they don't really understand what's being asked of them when they say that we took action against the that site. They're talking about that whole uh, Call of Duty Go or not Call of Duty uh, Counter Strike Go thing, and that was on a third party website. That's not the same thing. That's like patently not the same thing. So 
that's super concerning to me that this supposedly most progressive gambling commission in the world has no idea what the actual questions being asked of them are. And it's super concerning to me that they don't appear to have anybody there that actually understands the intricacies of, of the issue at play here. I mean, that shouldn't, that shouldn't come as a surprise because this is a, a relatively new thing. Sure. And they're, they're used to dealing with things that aren't in this space. And so for them to not have someone in place is, you know, whatever. But obviously, because this is such a hot button issue, um, sooner rather than later, I would imagine they will have someone who is trained and understands and will be better equipped to deal with this. Yeah, I mean, they clearly need somebody who has an understanding of, like, e-commerce and, and like, video games to some degree, you know? Um, somebody who's, like, a new media expert or something like that um, to advise them on these kinds of situations. Yeah, like, I really don't know if it should be their job, though. I mean, it shouldn't. The games industry should self-regulate before the government makes us. Yeah, but, like, I don't know. It's... A really, really, really dumb that this still has to be an issue. Because, like, I don't know. Part of me says, if you don't want loot boxes, then just don't buy the loot boxes. But also part of me says, this is clearly fucking predatory. Maybe don't do that. Yeah, and I think... I think there's there's a conversation to be had there and the answer somewhere in the middle. Like whether it's giving some kind of warning like they do on the App Store for mobile games about this kind of thing. Like I think one of the best comparisons I've heard brought up um was somebody wrote into kind of funny games daily and said that, you know, we get you know, there's like less than 5% of people are affected by epilepsy, but every video game I've ever played has an epilepsy warning. So like is it unreasonable for them to put a gambling or something like that addiction warning for the, you know, statistical amount of people that are going to be affected by um, that trigger, as it were, you know, because this shit is predatory for people who have those problems. I mean, it's it's not even predatory for people who have those problems. It's predatory in general. Yeah, yeah you're right. Specifically to those people, though, right? Like if you're somebody who has gambling, a, a gambling problem or gets that, um, you know, serotonin release from the, the same kind of trigger that this has from gambling. Oh, yeah. Um. Yeah, that's potentially dangerous for you, and I think I don't think it's unreasonable to say that there should be uh, some kind of warning or ability for the consumer to empower themselves to be aware that that's going to be pushed on them and, and avoid that. The consumer empowering themselves implies that they would do anything the consumer would to empower themselves, and all this talk is about everybody else doing something. There's like no... There's no onus on the gamer to actually have any brain at all. And that's one of the things that I really dislike is at what point do we say, I'm going to have self-control and I'm going to not do this if it's a problem or yeah. do it and accept the consequences. Loot boxes are what they are. It, it, it's just a thing. And uh, you can either engage with it or, or not, you know, and I don't understand why the government has to step in or why this person has to step in, or we need a regulatory committee, just buy them or don't. That's it. You know, and if you're a parent and you don't want your kids buying loot boxes, don't give them your credit card information. Don't let them access right. that. It's it's yeah. very simple. Everybody complicates everything. 
I do I do think that it's not unreasonable to say that there should be some personal responsibility with the publishers, like with the game makers, because, you know, this is a thing that exists in games and it's going to keep existing in games until somebody makes them stop, period. And that's fine. I don't think that there's inherently a problem with microtransactions or even loot boxes or season passes or any of these things, regardless of how we feel about them. Um, because I agree with you, Sean. If you really don't like them, speak with your wallet and don't buy them. Buy the game you like and don't buy the extra content. You know, and, and let them have that data to see that, you know, there are a contingency of people that don't want this shit. But the reality of it is, is that as long as they make money, which we'll talk about how much money they do make later, um, they're going to exist. And I think it's not unfair or unreasonable for us uh, as a community to say, like, okay, but there's a line. You know, like, there should be a line of, like, not intentionally trying to... um be predatory or or necessarily like uh or, or you know impacting the game right because we can all agree on that as soon as these things impact content that's a problem i don't think we're at that point well i mean I, people who are playing shadow of war may, might disagree with you that's one game people take that one example and blow it up i mean i play games that have loot boxes where it's not an issue at all i play heroes of the storm every day and you for me, it's as simple as, oh, I leveled up, I got a loot box, cool. Yeah, but that's the thing is like in that game, it has a good system, right? Like in this year, we've had Shadow of War, we had NBA Two K eighteen, and we had um, what was it Forza? I guess right was the other one. Yeah, I think. yeah. Um, that have all been really, really supremely negatively impacted by loot boxes that were gating content that used to just be stuff that you unlocked in the game. And so what happens? What happens is people react. Two K learns their lesson. And they won't do it again. And that's and that's the system. That's the only system that we need. Yeah, I mean, I think to a degree you're right. I think that like the, the system does self-regulate to a degree because these games will suffer because of these things. And publishers won't do these same practices. They might even fix these games, right? Um, or, right, we even talked about last week about how Star Wars Battlefront 2 is being affected by these loot boxes in the same way. Like, this is the year of... You know, Overwatch came out last year and Blizzard made, you know, $3 billion fucking with microtransactions this year. So obviously everyone else is trying to do that. And I think now we're at the point where like everyone's getting judged in the court of, ah, excuse me, God, in the court of public opinion about how we feel about this shit. And yeah, I think you're right. There are a lot of people who are overreacting, but I think the fact that these conversations are happening are important because that's why it won't happen again, to your point. Is the fact that people are this fucking fired up about it. Why why open yourself to that um PR nightmare around your game, you know? Well, I think I think one of the things too is that this is also new for these developers. And these developers obviously want to make maximum cash. And, you know, I think it's easy for us to be on this end of it and say, Wow, that's so predatory. How dare you guys do this? And they may be not trying to do that. They may be trying to say, how can we make maximum dollars and not recognize the ways in which it may or may not be predatory and maybe don't realize how their system isn't as good as Blizzard's system. And that's why there do have to be people who say, that system sucks. I'm not putting my money at that, uh, but I will spend my money over here. And then, and then they learn, okay, this is not the way to do it. Let's do better. And I think that Maybe if we just look at it that way where, you know, maybe they're not trying to be douchebags about it. Uh, it doesn't have to be this heated debate. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily warranted, but I do think people sitting and saying, 
that's not cool. Don't do it that way. I think that's fine. Because we need to teach them what we want. Yep. Yeah. And again, again, speak with your wallet. You know, I think I think the fear there, too, though, is that if there are enough whales that buy into the system, is that enough to support the system that the vast majority of people don't actually want? And that's, specula- that's speculation, though, right? It, it is. <laughs> but then when you're talking about a game like 2K, for example, which is a yearly release, I think it's different with a free game. But with a yearly release like 2K, people actually have to buy the game. And so if people hate the micro microtransactions to that degree and they're not buying the game, the whales aren't making up for that. People still – they still need to sell the thing. Yep. That's a great point. All right. So I think, I think that's enough on loot boxes for now. But uh, speaking of controversy, uh, the wave of sexual assault allegations that have started coming out of the entertainment industry since news broke about uh, film industry titan Harvey Weinstein, um, I guess two weeks ago now – have uh, finally hit the video game industry in uh, two pretty major ongoing stories. So the first came from Naughty Dog, the first-party Sony Sony studio behind Crash Bandicoot, Jack and Daxter, Uncharted, and The Last of Us. Uh, David Ballard, who is a designer who has since left the studio, alleged that uh, in a series of tweets that he was fired from the company in February 2016 after informing the studio and Sony Interactive's HR department of the harassment. So uh, I'm going to read you David's tweets real quick. Uh, It's not too much, but I want to give you his side of the story in his words. So um, it's uh, David Ballard at DBall on uh, Twitter wrote, In late 2015, I was sexually harassed at Naughty Dog by a lead. My work environment became extremely toxic afterward. In February 2016, I had a mental breakdown at work and Sony PlayStation HR became involved. When I told them about the harassment, they ended the call and fired me the next day. They cited the company was moving in a different direction and my job was no longer needed. They tried to silence me by offering me $20,000 if I signed a letter agreeing to the termination as well as not to discuss it with anyone. I declined to sign. I have since been unemployed for 17, or I have been unemployed for 17 months since. When interviewers ask why I left Naughty Dog, I say it was burned out by the crunch, ashamed to get to the root of the problem of being sexually harassed. I'm speaking out now because of the strength I've seen in others coming forward about their experiences in the TV film industry. This this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I will not let anyone kill my drive or love for the video game industry, my passions, or life. So, uh, Naughty Dog then uh, responded to that in a blog post called An Important, an, an important Statement from Naughty Dog. So, uh, I'll, I'm going to read that for you guys real quick as well. We have recently read on social media that an ex-employee of Naughty Dog, Dave Ballard, claims he was sexually harassed when he worked at Naughty Dog. We, we have not found any evidence of having received allegations from Mr. Ballard that he was harassed in any way at Naughty Dog or Sony Interactive Entertainment. Harassment and inappropriate conduct have no place at Naughty Dog and Sony Interactive Entertainment. We have taken and will always take the, the, and will always take reports of sexual harassment and other workplace grievances very seriously. We value every single person who works at Naughty Dog and Sony Interactive Entertainment. It is of the utmost importance to us that we maintain a safe, productive workplace environment that allows us all to channel our shared passion for making games. So, um, these are obviously very serious accusations and uh, not likely the last we'll see of uh, similar stories to come out from the world of games. But what do we think about the situation, how it's being handled? Um, a lot of people have had some pretty, um, you know, severe reactions to, to this, these allegations and Naughty Dog's response. To be honest, man, uh, I, I don't really – I don't know how to really – discuss this uh because 
there's not enough data. This is at this point, it's this guy saying this and Naughty Dog is saying it didn't happen. And or not even saying that it didn't happen, that they have no record right. of him coming forward to talk about it. Right. And so that's that's kind of where it is. Uh, and uh, it's, it sucks for him to be in this position. Again, I don't know if it's true. Uh, and it's very, very difficult to publicly comment about something like that without enough information, to be honest. I, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. Man, do I hate Naughty Dog's response. Yeah, it's clearly written by lawyers, right? It's like, it didn't happen. If it did, we would have taken it seriously, and even if we didn't, it didn't happen. Well, they didn't say that. They were very careful not to say that it didn't happen. We have no record. Well, what are they supposed to say? I don't know. There's a way to express all those same sentiments in a way that shows, like, some level of human compassion. Like... Uh, you know, we have no record of this happening, but, like, we're determined to get to the bottom of this and make this right. Make it right sounds like there's something to make right. Exactly. And I think that's the thing, right, is this is written in a very careful way. I think yeah. this is written with the expectation that Dave might uh, bring a lawsuit against them or might um, – I mean, if Dave's telling the truth, he absolutely should be bringing a lawsuit against them. Oh, sure. The right – like, that's that's not up for debate. It's a matter of – I guess just trying to understand why this is the way it is, right? Because, like, I, I think it's important to sever the people at Naughty Dog, right, that might not have known that this happened or might, you know, like, it was one executive who did this. And we don't know how many other people were involved. And it's like we couldn't – we were never going to get a statement from somebody like Neil Druckmann or one of the people that we think of as the faces of Naughty Dog because – we don't know where this story is going to net out. We don't know if this is the last we're going to hear of it. If Dave just wanted to come out and speak in solidarity to say, hey, like me too, um, or if he's going to do something from here, which I hope he does. Yeah, um, I really do, too. I hope that. I hope that things get better for him. And I hope that this stops happening yeah that's just that's really all you can say about it at this point um and you know we'll update you guys as this story progresses if we do hear more from dave or naughty dog but uh you know it's it's unfortunate that this this kind of thing is so prevalent in every corner of you know the world not but especially the entertainment industry in these last few weeks because you know that's obviously not what we want to be here to talk about um, unfortunately, that is not where this kind of news stops this week, as video game forum NeoGAF has gone dark after sexual assault allegations have surfaced about the site's owner, Tyler Evilor Malka. So, uh, Matt Kim over at US Gamer has a quick article that sums up the situation real well, uh, so I'm gonna read you guys some of the highlights from it here, just to catch up. Online video game forum NeoGAF is currently down after sexual assault allegations came forward against site owner Tyler Evilor Malka. Many of the site's moderation team have stepped down in protest against Malka, and the forum's future is currently unclear. So today, sexual assault allegations against Malka began circulating online, which alleged that Malka made unwanted sexual advances against an, in in against an individual. The moderation team stepped down from the site for various personal reasons, some in solidarity with the victim. Furthermore, NeoGAF users began protesting the site and its owner just before the site went down. According to Twitter, this is not the first time allegations of sexual assault have come up against Malka. However, recent events regarding sexual assault and harassment in the video game and larger entertainment industry have prompted swift action against perpetrators of sexual assault. 
One screen-capped post from NeoGAF member announcing their resignation posted a banner of NeoGAF's logo with the words Believe Women attached, which is a take on the site's regular slogan, Believe. Uh, NeoGAF is reportedly preparing a statement, though the future of the website is unclear. So yeah, uh, there are no really more details uh, since then, except for the fact that NeoGAF uh, went back online for a short amount of time, it, it appeared, but it doesn't... Uh, I'm, I'm tr- trying to take a look right now to see, actually. Yeah, it looks like it is down again at the time of this uh, this this recording. So, you know, this is another really unfortunate situation. We don't know much about the situation. There's not much to comment on here, but this is a huge deal because NeoGAF is a really active forum, obviously. A lot of news breaks out of NeoGAF, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens from here. You know, because Tyler owns the, so- the site, and there's not... I don't think there's going to be any way that people will be able to, like, the community will be able to reclaim NeoGAF away from him. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here. Uh, I can't wait to see uh, geogaf.com launch. <laughs> Paleogaf. Yeah, I don't, that's a better one. Any any other any other thoughts on this before we move on? Um, it's, I hate hearing about this kind of stuff. Like, don't sexually harass people. Don't sexually assault people. Just don't fucking do it. Yep, don't be a douche. Like, you got some power in some community. Great. Don't abuse it. So moving on from that, thank God, before we get into the biggest stories this week, we have a few smaller stories that I I wanted to just kind of get into to break things up. Uh, So usually I, you know, I usually start the show with this kind of lighter news, but you know, my world's on fire. How about yours? That's the way I like it. And I never get bored. Me neither. So, in maybe the weirdest story this week, Sony Music is launching a new publishing arm for games that will release games for Switch and PC. Sony Music Entertainment has launched a new publishing label called Unities, or Unites? No, it's Unties, excuse me, Jesus, I can read. (laughs) A new publishing label called Unties, uh, whose upcoming projects include a game called Tiny Metal, which is uh, coming to the Switch, as well as PC and PS4. So, uh, Unties has revealed three more projects, one for PS4 and, ooh, God, excuse me, gassy today, and two that are listed for PC slash TBA, hinting that they could possibly be coming to other platforms in the future. So, Sony Music has said that the label has been established to, quote, unearth high-quality indie titles and utilize SME's vast entertainment business wisdom in order to expose them to as many consumers as possible, unquote. Uh, then they went on to say that um, they'd like to, quote, free creators from the myriad ties that bind them when it comes to publishing their games and, quote, make free limitless publishing a reality. So this isn't the first time Sony's published games on other platforms, but the fact that this is like being run through Sony Music instead of Sony PlayStation or Sony Interactive Entertainment uh, is like just straight up baffling. So I have some thoughts on this, but what do you guys think? I'm confused. Largely. Like... I hope it works out, because I like things to work out for people, but I don't know why it's going through Sony Music. Is it going to be rhythm games? Is it going to be what? I don't know, but I want to see more good Sony first-party games on my non-Sony platforms, so thumbs up, emoji. Yeah, I don't know what to think of this either, really. It's just strange. You know, it's like, I think the things that, like, when they say, like, oh, we want to um, utilize our vast entertainment business wisdom to expose these as to as many consumers as possible, don't you think that PlayStation or SIE would be more equipped to doing that? Because that's what they've been doing for, like, fucking since 1997? 
Nah, man. As, it's all about the music industry making video games. There's two things everybody loves. It's the music industry and people who don't have experience making games getting into games. That's for sure. Uh, I, I feel like this is the kind of news that, like, I, I wonder what the people at PlayStation think. Like, I wonder if they knew about this or if they just, like, saw this headline and they're just like, what the fuck? Like, because, <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, and then, you know, they said, like, they want to free creators from the myriad ties that bind them when publishing their games and make free limitless publishing a reality. Oh, so Steam or the iPhone marketplace, which are both filled with hot garbage? Great. Looking forward to that. Hey, man. Steam Greenlight Screensaver with Boobs is my favorite game there is. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, limitless, limitless Publishing. We see how well that works out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't know. I want to I wanna hope for the best here, but this is just weird to me. I don't, I can't imagine this going well. If you want my hot takes. I prefer your hot cakes, frankly. <laughs> I do make a mean pancake. So, in our lead, late, in our latest, Jesus, what is wrong with me today? In our latest What the Fuck Nintendo segment, the Switch has its version 4.0.0 update that provided solutions for some of the console's more glaring flaws, but not everything works as smoothly as one might hope because, of course, it's Nintendo. So, for starters, the console now has the promised ability to capture and share video clips from games. However, as of this recording, the feature only works with the Breath of the, with Breath of the Wild, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, ARMS, and Splatoon 2. Um, so, you know, basic, you know, major AAA Nintendo published games. Uh, and then Mario Odyssey has also been confirmed to have it upon release. So, um, on top of that, the feature only supports a, quote, maximum of the previous 30 seconds of gameplay in 720p at 30 frames per second, which can then be trimmed and shared on Facebook or Twitter. So, that's horrible. 30 seconds is, like, no amount of time. So, like, if something really cool happens, you better be right on top of that shit. And then the fact that it's at 720, uh, 720p at 30 FPS is just not good. That's not good quality. Like, and I know that's the size of the screen and everything for the, um, you know, handheld version, but this is, like, useless. This is basically useless. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's one of those things that has to be part of the trade-off for portability and price. Like, mm. like you just, there's not enough RAM to save more high quality video and keep it a $300 machine and have it be a, you know, handheld. And like, that's fair, but like, maybe just don't have it at all then. Like, I mean, I guess having something is better than nothing, but. Yeah, like something's better than nothing. And if you are right on top of it, you get that cool highlight. Yeah. And you can throw it on your Twitter real quick, which is nice. Yeah. But, but like. I don't know. It's a nice. I can't think of the phrase. It's like it's not an olive branch, but it's like they're throwing a bone to the we're trying the community. Yeah, they're trying, and something's better than nothing. I suppose it's just I think when you compare this to what Sony has for you with PS4 share, it's like I don't know. It's like apples and grapes, like <laughs> because they're little. And they go great if you put them together, like in a juice. They're two totally different systems, and, you know, the PlayStation is built to be something very different than what the Switch is built to be. And I, I, I kind of just echo Andy's sentiments here. Yeah, yeah. 
unfortunately, if you want to capture Switch gameplay, it seems like you're going to need to just invest in an Elgato like the rest of us. Oh, no. So, <laughs> uh, we also now have the ability to transfer user profiles and save data to a new console, but again, the system has its caveats. So, um, from Nintendo's support page, it says, quote, once the process is complete, the user information, the associated save data, and the software purchased with the user account that is transferred will no longer be available on the source console. So while this is great, if, uh, you know, for somebody like Andy's sister, who's been playing on his Switch since it came out, she got her own, she could ostensibly transfer her profile, her save data, and anything she's purchased to a new Switch, which is great. Um, or, you know, great for families. But it means that, uh, you know, if you wanted to, like, it's, it's a one-way permanent transfer. So, like, if you wanted to back up your data on an external drive in the event that your Switch was lost, destroyed, or stolen, um, that's not possible. Which is unfortunate. You know, I get why, but uh, it, it does kind of suck that you can't just, like, back it up and only have it active on one Switch at a time. But, again, that's a technical limitation that I, I guess I can understand. Um, any thoughts on that? That's kind of, like, a non-whatever. It's fine. Like, yeah. Like, it's not a great system, but it does what I'd want it to do if I buy a new Switch. I want to be able to put my saves on it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Like, especially in the event, like, if there's, like, a special edition one, yeah, like, or, you know. it's the bare minimum functionality that's expected, and that's fine. It doesn't, Yeah. like, I would like to be able to back up my games, maybe, but, like, I don't know. I never do. I guess right. I have yeah. cloud backups through, like, Steam Cloud and Xbox Live, but. It's it, right, and that's the thing is like it's a thing that like it's a it's a um a perk that I feel like isn't necessarily isn't necessary until it is yeah like it's the kind of thing where you're like oh when am I gonna do that but then it's like you know uh, a friend of the show Mike McMahon like had his switch stolen and the, like if this system was in place he could have theoretically had it on an extra hard drive and when he got his new switch just you know popped it in and kept on rolling and that would be great but you know I get why it's not that way yeah and it's like. Uh, the only thing they could do that would make this, you know, a better system in my eyes is, like, just that cloud backups as part of the Nintendo Live service. Boom. Done. Yeah. And that, I think, takes a far greater investment than what I'm expecting, which is just literally just let me make a copy. Yeah. You know, because that, that requires investment in infrastructure and... I also understand why they don't want to do that, though. Yeah, because that could probably be pretty easily exploitable. Yep. So... You know, I get it. Um, so just to wrap this up, the update also brought new profile icons for Super Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild, support to pre-purchase certain games, quote, certain games, on the Switch's eShop storefront, as well as a new sales section, which is a nice little quality of life update. And then, uh, despite not being listed anywhere, which is super weird, support for USB wireless headsets. Um, I've actually included a few extra articles for this news story if you want to check out the deal about the USB wireless headsets. Not a thing that any of us, I think, care about, but um, there is specific information about it if you want to go figure out if your headset is compatible. So uh, go check that out. So, all right, now that we're through all that, uh, let's get into the really meaty stuff that happened this week. We've got two news items that are going to take us into our meat and potatoes. Um, that is a, a pretty big conversation in and of itself. So Activision made headlines this week for the patent of technology for a matchmaking system that encourages players to buy microtransactions. So this story was originally broke uh, by Rolling Stone. Um, they have a little video imprint, a video game imprint, excuse me, that's called Glixel, um, which uh, there's an article by Brian uh, Crescente, which I'm going to uh, pull from real quick just to catch everybody up on what's going on here. 
because I'm sure you heard about this, whether or not you actually heard the full context of it and the intricacies is, is another thing entirely. So Activision, this is from his article. Activision was granted a patent this month for a system that it uses to conceive people or to convince people in multiplayer games to purchase items for a game through microtransactions. But Activision tells Glixel that the technology is not currently in any games. Quote, this was an exploratory patent filed in 2015 by an R&D team working independently from our game studios. An Activision spokesperson tells Glixel, it has not been implemented in game. And then uh, this happened on Twitter, but Bungie's uh, has also made a public statement and reached out to Glixel uh, that the technology is not being used in Destiny 2. So um, the, quote, system and method for driving microtransactions in multiplayer video games, unquote, was filed in 2015, but granted on October 17th, according to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. The patent details how multiplayer matches are uh, configured specifically how players are selected to play with one another. The process used by Activision involves a computer looking at a wide variety of factors, including skill level, internet latency, availability of friends, and other things. It then goes through a system to first soft to first soft reserve a slot in a game for a player and then assign the players to the same match. This patent, though, specifically discusses how that system for pairing up players can also be used to entice a player to purchase in-game items. Quote, for example, in one implementation, the system may include a microtransaction engine that arranges matches to influence game-related purchases, according to the patent. For instance, the microtransaction engine may match a more expert-slash-more-key player with a junior player to encourage the junior player to make game-related purchases of items possessed used by that marquee player. A junior player may wish to emulate the marquee player by obtaining weapons or other items used by the marquee player. The patent goes on to note that the same information could be used to identify which sort of in-game purchasable, purchasable items could be promoted, or should be promoted, rather. The system can also be much more specific in its analysis of certain uh, potential customers in a game. In a particular example, the junior player may wish to become an expert sniper in a game, e.g. as determined from the player profile. The microtransaction engine may match the junior player with a player that is highly skilled as a sniper in the game. In this manner, the junior player may be encouraged to buy game-related purchases, such as a rifle or other item used by that marquee player. This is just back to the article. The system can also drop players into matches, which will make use of an in-game-related purchases, according to the patent. Quote, doing so may enhance a level of enjoyment for the player by the player for the game-related purchase, which may encourage future purchases. For example, if the player purchased a particular weapon, the microtransaction engine may match the player in a gameplay session in which that particular weapon is highly effective, giving the player an impression that the particular weapon was a good purchase. This may encourage the player to make future purchases to achieve similar gameplay results, which is probably the part that makes me the most uncomfortable. Um, the patent also makes it clear that while the examples used in the patent are for all for a first-person shooter game, the system could be used across a wide variety of titles. Um, and then uh, right here, they say in 2016, Activision Blizzard said it earned $3.6 billion from in-game sales, up from 2015's $1.6 billion. And again, that's $3.6 billion with a B. Uh, and this story has been updated to reflect the comments by Glixel, uh, or to Glixel by Bungie and Activision um, from when it went live, just to give you guys that context. So again, huge shout out to Rolling Stone for this and Glixel and uh, Brian Cushante for, for the journalism done here. Uh, so what do we think about this? I know obviously this isn't actively being placed in any games according to Activision, um, but obviously a lot of people got fucking fired up about this. You know, there's a lot here that could make you uncomfortable. Dude, you want to talk about predatory. This is This is something 
to be mad about because this is essentially uh this is actively messing with you this is hey you just bought an item let's put you in a scenario that it will specifically be great in so that you feel good about your purchase so that you will make more there what what other place is this the kind of thing that would happen like this doesn't even happen when you're gambling in real life this is this is way worse than that this is terrible uh, you know, I mean, actually, it's 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 funny not to cut you off. It it reminds me not of specifically gambling, but of like the context of gambling, right? Of like, oh, you're here gambling. We're gonna pump you full of free drinks delivered served to you by hot people, you know, and like give you the impression that this is valuable to you. You want to be here. You're having fun, right? Uh, so I'm glad this isn't in any game because that would be really really bad. And now that this news came out, now that this was discovered, you can almost be guaranteed this will never be in a game. Uh, but this is where their head is at. This is the kind of thing that they're thinking about. That's like right. a scary, scary almost, though, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, sure, they'll say this shit's not going to be in a game. But, like, that's the thing that's scariest about this, is that, like... Matchmaking systems are so sort of insular. Right. And they're not transparent. Yeah, where it's like you're never going to see that. Yeah, so like the fact that they're like, oh, it's not in anything right now. It's like, okay, but does that does that mean that you're going to tell us when it is? No. So it's, yeah, like it's a doomsday thing, but like we don't know that it won't ever show up in a game. Yeah. I believe them when they say it hasn't. Um... But but that doesn't mean that it won't. Activision publishes Call of Duty, right? Yeah. That's just because World War II hasn't come out yet. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, But yeah, just uh, this is going to come up again. But Sean, what do you think about that number as a Blizzard fan? That three, that three, over three billion dollars number. A lot of that you got to think has come from Blizzard games, right? Like Overwatch, uh, Hearthstone, a lot of the games that do have, uh, or even Heroes, I guess, that have, um, you know, loot box systems to varying degrees, right? Sure. Uh, I think, I think that you can definitely, you can definitely attribute that to loot boxes. You can definitely attribute that to microtransactions. I think that that's okay. Uh, I don't, I, again, I don't have a problem with loot boxes or microtransactions. There's more in the story that you read that um we didn't touch on that that but that does bother me, which is how they changed Destiny 2 uh the way the the shaders work. Um because it's so blatant, right? Like just right. really fast. They basically made it so that uh in in Destiny 2 shaders can the shaders are harder to they don't drop as much and they can only be used on a single item before they vanish. Compare that to Destiny 1, where once you unlock them, you unlock them, and they were kind of just in the wild, and they were very much easily attainable. Um, yeah, and they, they, were, they weren't disposable. Right. That, that feels bad, right? That, as a gamer, that feels bad. You know, from one iteration yeah. of the game to another, for it to change that drastically, that doesn't feel good. I understand why fans of, of Destiny would be upset, and I do think that, you know, listen, you made three three billion dollars on uh, mic microtransactions. You don't have yeah, to... yeah. And again, that's just microtransactions. Right. I don't, that's not even considering sales or anything. Right. You don't have to. 
nickel and dime the audience or the fan base that much. You're going to get your money. You don't have to, you don't, it's not everything that's not nailed down that you have to, you know, get people to buy from you. You know, you can, you can relax a little bit, I think. Yeah, man. And I think that comes back to what we said earlier, where I think that's where I'd like to see publishers and developers, not developers. I don't think that's necessarily fair to say publishers. I would like to see them take some responsibility here where like you made $3 billion on microtransactions. I think you can be a little bit less gross about them sometimes, you know? And and by the way, you know, we, we mentioned Blizzard. I do want to say that that's not how Blizzard does things. That's Activision. Uh, Blizzard yeah, but I mean, they are the same company. Yeah, no, but they operate separately. Blizzard doesn't Right. Blizzard doesn't engage in this kind of behavior. Well, yeah. Um, not not to this level anyway. Uh yeah, and um I, I think yep, you know, that's that's enough for now. We got one more news story and we're gonna talk about this in our main topic. So let's we'll put a pin in that discussion for now. We're gonna talk forever about news. Uh yeah, man. I mean, like I said, it was it's yeah. it's been a f- it's been a week. Week. I cut stuff. Like, there's fucking... The LCS is dominated by basketball teams this week, and we didn't even talk about it, because Jesus Christ... We'll talk about it next week. It's fine. Yeah, I want to bring Peggy back on for that, because she's our... Cleveland Cavaliers. Esports correspondent. I swear to God, if we get four years of Cavs Warriors in the finals in the LCS, too, I'm going to be very (laughs) upset. Uh, all right, so our last story this week uh, is EA is shutting down Visceral Games, the team behind Dead Space, and who uh, you know are currently working on the game we're about to be talking about, and making significant significant changes uh, to the formerly upcoming Star Wars game being helmed by former Uncharted director slash writer Amy Hennig. So this game, uh, this news came from a blog post written by EA's executive VP Patrick Soderlund, who uh, I'm going to read it to you real quick because it's another tight one. And there's a lot here to unpack. So, uh, Patrick writes, Our industry is evolving faster and more dramatically than ever before. The games we want to play and spend time with, the experiences we want to have in those games, and the way we play, all those things are continually changing. So is the way games are made. In this fast-moving space, we are always focused on creating experiences that our players want to play. And today, that means we're making a significant change with one of our upcoming titles. Our Visceral Studio has been developing an action-adventure title set in the Star Wars universe. In its current form, it was shaping up to be a story-based linear adventure game. Throughout the development process, we have been testing the game concept with players, listening to the feedback about how and uh, what and how they want to play, and closely tracking fundamental shifts in the marketplace. It has become clear that to deliver an experience that players will want to come back to and enjoy for a long time to come, we needed to pivot the design. We will maintain the stunning visuals, authenticity in the Star Wars universe, and focus on bringing a Star Wars story to life. Importantly, we are shifting the game to be a broader experience that allows for more variety and player agency, leaning into the capabilities of our Frostbite engine and reimagining central elements of the game to give players a Star Wars adventure of greater depth and breadth to explore. This move leads to a few other changes. A development team from across EA Worldwide Studios will take over development of this game, led by a team from EA Vancouver that has already been working on the project. Our Visceral Studio will be ramping down and closing, and we're in the midst of shifting as many of the team as possible to other projects and teams at EA. Lastly, while we had originally expected this game to launch late in our fiscal year 2019, we're now looking at a new time frame that that we will announce in the future. 
Bringing new Star Wars games to life for every passionate fan out there is what drives us as creators. It's what has inspired us to deliver the new massive, the massive new Star Wars Battlefront 2 experience launching in just a few weeks. It fuels our live service in Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Making games in extraordinary... Making games in the extraordinary Star Wars universe is a dream for so many of us here at EA, and we have so many more experiences to come for players on every platform. We want to take the time to get each game right, to make it unique, to make it amazing. Except this one. We look forward to answering more of your questions, sharing more of our plans and timeline for this new Star Wars experience in the months to come. So, uh, that is obviously hugely disappointing to many people, um, especially me as an Uncharted fan. Um, this game's been in development since at least 2013 when EA and Disney announced their multi-year deal around the Star Wars license, and though it's been described as story-based and linear uh, adventure in the style of Naughty Dog's Uncharted series, Soderlund's comments all but confirm that that direction has been totally scrapped, and uh, we're getting, you know, this so-called pivot. Um, so... When asked about Amy Hennig's future at EA, a representative for the company told Polygon, quote, we're in discussions with Amy about her next move. So whether Amy's going to still be involved, whether any of the work that they've been doing for the last three years is going to be salvaged is uh, totally up in the air. And um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't hold out hope. So as you can imagine, reactions from fans and the development team alike has been a cry out basically for what could have been for a game that people were really excited for. Uh, so um, Todd Stashwick, who is the he's an actor who was the co-writer of the game and was going to play the game's main character. Uh, via mocap and voice acting, um, tweeted, without saying specifically, he tweeted, For the record, it was beautiful, amazing, fun, and funny. The ride for me was singular. Talented, passionate folks making something great. And then Zach Mumbach, who um, was, uh, he's a, a producer at, at Visceral right now, but he's been with the company for, um, since the one fucking Battlefield game they did years ago, he worked on two of the Dead Spaces, so he's been there for a long time. Um, he he had a tweet where he had a screen cap, and it was captioned, Thank you, fans. Thank you, coworkers, and goodbye, Visceral Games. And he wrote, I appreciate all the support and words of encouragement I've been receiving in the last few days. It means a lot. My wife and I had our second child on Sunday, and then Visceral was closed on Tuesday, so it's still a lot to take in right now. I'm kind of walking around in a daze. I'm incredibly sad. For the cancellation of the amazing game we were making, the closure of the studio where I spent the majority of my adult life working, and the knowledge that I won't get to work with the people on this team anymore. Visceral meant a lot to me. It's the only home I've ever known, and there's just no way around it. This is heartbreaking. I'm incredibly lucky and honored to have had the opportunity to work with the amazingly talented people who made Visceral what it was. Thank you to all the people who supported our studio and played our games over the years. Soon I'll figure out what's next, but for now I'm going to hang out with my new baby, play some video games, and reflect on all the great times over the last 17 years. I I just want to call attention to the way he says hang out with my new baby. Like, oh yeah, you know, we're just going to eat some Doritos, drink a couple beers, maybe smoke a bowl, play some FIFA, yeah. you know? Exactly, you gotta unwind. We're not going to play FIFA, he's still burned by EA. <laughs> um... But yeah, so I mean, before we talk into the the news of this, you know, I, I, I always want to start conversations like this by saying our hearts go out to those who are affected by this. This sucks. And it sucks that somebody who's been at this studio for so many years is out of a fucking job. And despite the fact that EA says that they're trying their best to relocate everybody, most of these people are going to be out of work and are going to have to reevaluate, you know, their careers. And that fucking sucks. And it sucks that it sucks that it happens this way. It sucks that they don't get more of a warning or a cushion or anything and that they're just kind of fucked now. And granted, like, 
he's got some great fucking names uh, to his, you know, you go look at his LinkedIn. He's worked on some of the biggest games in the last couple of years in terms of, you know, um, sales and name recognition. So I'm sure he's going to land on his feet, but it sucks that this happens and it sucks that, you know, uh, Thompson, you know, called EA the serial killer of studios. And, you know, I defend EA left and right about stuff like this. I think they get a unfair, um, they're unfairly billed as like the meanest, most money grubby developer or publisher in the industry sometimes, but they do shit like this that fucking sucks and is gross. And like, I get it, business realities and everything. They put three years into this game. So obviously they came to the conclusion that the financials didn't warrant working on it for another two years for what the return that they were going to make was. But the way they talk about this, it sounds obviously that they were just like, well, it's not going to make enough money. So let's pivot. And that fucking sucks. Like, I wanted this game. You committed to giving us this game. And they're obviously going to just try and pivot this into fucking Star Wars Destiny. And, like, we don't need another fucking games as service game. Like, we don't. Like, you're already fucking doing that with Bioware and Anthem. So, like, do we really need two of these games from you, EA? Like, come on. Get yeah. fired up. No, I'm I'm team you on this one. Like, I think it's a, a shitty move. I think the business realities are what they are. But, like, don't fucking sink three years into this game. Try and make some return on it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know, guys. You guys are you guys can't say that because you don't work in the industry. You're not working on the game. It why like if they if they devoted three years into the game, then obviously they thought that they had something. And they thought that it was gonna be something that would be profitable. And this is a situation where they, they obviously if they're gonna close visceral and that's where things are then they have to make a game that's going to be profitable. And those are the realities of the industry. And I don't see how they can be blamed for not putting out a game that they don't think is going to sell. That's the thing, though, is like, I don't think that that's the concern. I don't think the concern is that it won't sell. I think the concern is that, well, we could make more money if we made it this instead of what we said we were going to make. And granted, like, you're right, right? The industry is going to shift. People got to change with the times. But like, don't announce the game. Don't promise me a game and tease it out for three years and then fucking cancel it. Oh, like, come on, man. I mean, they. Th- this isn't like, it's not like, you know, it's not, it's not like our parents promised us a Christmas gift and then didn't deliver on it. You know, like, it's this exactly is- like that, Sean. <laughs> they told me that I was going to get Uncharted basically, but Star Wars. And that's what I fucking wanted. I was going to show up for that game. I was going to pre-order that game. I was going to buy that game. And, like, it sucks to me that they're like, oh, well, we can make more money if we make it a games as service because that's where the industry is going. And it's like, all right, fine, but, like, just make a new Star Wars game that's that. Don't fucking axe this game. I don't know, man. I've dealt – there are plenty of games that I've wanted to see historically that have gotten canceled. It is what it is. That's something that happens. But it sucks. We, we're allowed to complain about it. But Fuck. you're But, you're, <laughs> but you're, you're demonizing them and not – you're demonizing them without the information. I mean, I have the information. I'm not ignoring the realities of the industry. It's just like, this sucks. This is bullshit. You know, like, it's fucking, I don't know, man. Like, I I think it it seems ridiculous to pour three years worth of time, money, and resources into something and then kill it because it's not going to make as much as a Destiny clone. Yeah. But we have plenty more to say about this. So let's go into the meat and potatoes. Um, before we do that, though, I did want to just take the opportunity to plug a uh, excellent op-ed from Polygon Simit Sakar, 
um, which is titled EA Star Wars Pivot is a vote of no confidence in single player games, which is uh, going to be a jumping off point, I think, throughout this conversation. I've got some some pulls from it that I would like to uh, to reference during this conversation. So actually, I'm going to use this as an opportunity right here uh, because what uh, what Sean is saying, I think, is something he reflects in this article pretty well. So he says, you can complain all you want about the infestation of microtransactions in full price games, but it's worth understanding why they're becoming more pervasive. The economics of this on of this strain of AAA game development dictate publishers' decisions in this arena. Budgets have skyrocketed in the high definition era, right along with players' expectations. Meanwhile, the retail price of a quote full game has stayed at uh, $59.99 since the Xbox 360's launch, kicked off the previous console generation in 2005, 12 years ago. That makes it more risky and challenging for publishers to justify pouring tens of millions of dollars, uh, not to mention the work of hundreds of developers over multiple years, into a project that may not strike a chord with customers. So, I want to ask you guys, are games as services, uh, online multiplayer games, and loot boxes killing AAA single-player experiences? We've seen loot boxes creeping their way into more and more uh, single-player games this year, like we discussed with Shadow of War, with Forza, and with um, NBA 2K18, and uh, with Activision reporting over th- Activision Blizzard reporting over three billion dollars of revenue coming from exclusively in-game purchases, and the lengthy life of GTA, La- GTA Online, which has made that the most successful entertainment um, property of all time. It's no surprise that publishers are looking to get a piece of this pie, right? So I think we've regularly discussed our concerned concerns about uh, critical darlings like Dishonored or even Prey this year that simply don't sell enough to uh, warrant their continued existence, it seems, in this current climate. So what do we think the future of AAA single-player games is here? And do you think that these new experiences, these new kinds of games that are dominating the conversation are what is uh, kind of slowly edging them out? So I, uh, I, I say no to the to the to the question. The question is: Are games and services, online games and loot boxes, killing AAA single player experiences? I say no. Uh, I say what's killing single player experiences is exactly the quote that you read from the Polygon article. Uh, I think that the fact that ga- the price of games has capped at sixty dollars, the price of a box game, uh, it for, it can't go up. That, for me, I've always told myself, that's it. I will not pay more money for games than $60. It's very high. Um, and they know that. I think we've seen that. Uh, I feel like there was a period of time, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe it, it may actually have been when games went from 50 to 60 But there was a period of time where they were kind of saying, well, some games will be priced lowered. Some games will be a little bit higher. Do you remember that? It was like in the mid two thousands where that yeah, they were kinda... and like we didn't really see that until this generation where we've actually seen the proliferation of like forty dollar box games as being a fairly common thing, right? Uh, and and so it never it never really kind of happened the way they said it would. Games just kind of cost sixty bucks. It reminds me of like when when Apple was like, oh, some uh, songs will be a dollar twenty nine, some will be ninety nine cents, some will be sixty nine cents. No, all the songs you want are a dollar twenty nine. That's just the way that kind of thing works. Um, so they can't price the games at more than sixty dollars, but the cost of making games is 
crazy high, you know, 12 years. And it's only going up. Yeah, and it's only going to get higher. So how do you make the development of a game worth the money that it costs? And this is the way to do that. And gamers have shown that they're okay with this, historically speaking. I mean, single-player gaming experiences have gotten worse in terms of the amount of offerings, not necessarily the quality, not the quality. Um, but they've gotten worse since the 2000s because of Call of Duty and all those different shooting games and games that are providing you experiences like that. People have turned away from the single-player gaming experience in droves. And especially when you're talking about the fact that there are probably, not probably, there are more casual gamers than ever who aren't looking for that experience. They're not. They're looking for the experience of the quick jump in, jump out gameplay that games like Call of Duty, Hearthstone, Heroes of the Storm, League of Legends provide. Single player gaming experiences cannot provide that, especially when you consider the fact that your time for entertainment is more limited than it's ever been because there's so much more to enjoy. Myself, as a hardcore gamer, I rarely play single-player games anymore, and it sucks because I want to, but I don't. Man, you're missing out. I know. I got um, I got two words for how to solve this problem, and it's how I've solved my problem. Atlas Tax. So, yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting point, Andy, that, like... I feel like the answer to this pro- this problem, which I see as a really major problem, because I I disagree with you, Sean. I agree with what you're saying, but I disagree with your answer to the question. I I do think these games are a real threat to those kinds of games, um, and just because people that's because people's tastes are shifting, and that's you know that's not a a good or bad thing. That's not like oh fuck Destiny or whatever because it's ruining the games I like. It's just like I think you're right. I think more and more. There are gamers who are casual people who used to buy one or two of these big single-player games and play it all year, and now they just play Destiny, or they just play League, you know, or whatever. Well, wait a second. The article itself says what I just said, which is that the, the, the cost of making games is so high now that you can't, you can't yes. guarantee that a single-player game is going to hit. The way you would yeah. need it to hit in order to justify that. So that's what I. Yeah, see. I'm sorry. You know, no, you're right, and I, I guess I, I misspoke. I didn't because I said like I agree with everything you're saying except for the fact that those games are also a threat. Like I agree with that point for sure. That the cost of these games uh, has gone up. There's no new way to bring in more revenue except for things like season passes and loot boxes, which the gaming community wants to bitch and moan about. So there isn't really an answer to that question uh, aside from being willing to pay more than $60, accepting that these games should have less content or um, these kinds of games trying to pivot into the more $40 experience like we saw earlier this year with uh, Uncharted The Lost Legacy and um, the Dishonored spinoff that, I, you know, The Death of the Outsider, where granted both of those games had engines already built for bigger um, more expensive AAA games, but I think maybe providing shorter, instead of it being like 20 or 30 hours, it's like 10 or 20 hours and it's $40 instead. That might be a way forward for these kinds of games. But, I mean, that's that's a huge change, right? Uh, but, you know, Sean, you gave me an in back in here. To take it back to that article, uh, one of the things that uh, Samat pointed out about the the thing with EA was one of the things I kind of touched on earlier, right? Where he said, 
EA's decision to pivot Visceral Star Wars project remains remarkable because of the existing investment, however. After three or four years of development at Visceral, EA Vancouver, and elsewhere inside the company, the game represented a huge sunk cost for EA. Crunching the numbers on the chances of the title's eventual success, it wasn't scheduled for release until sometime in EA's 2019 fiscal year, which ends in March 2019. It must have indicated to EA executives that it wasn't worth to keep it wasn't worth it to keep throwing money into a game focused around a linear single-player campaign, i.e., a game that wouldn't be conducive to long-term monetization. Um, <clears throat> EA isn't immune to this trend because it's affecting everybody. A number of major AAA single-player games from the past have uh, past couple of years have failed to meet sales expectations, including Bethesda Softworks Dishonored 2 and Prey, Square Enix's Deus Ex Mankind Divided, and Ubisoft's Watch Dogs 2, all of which are series that we know are pretty much going to be put to bed for a while at the very least um, because of that. What's even more worrisome is that all of those games are open rather than linear in their design, even the ones that aren't open world experiences per se. So even that, right? Like that's that's a a point in that that column of like even a lot of those games are not the kind of games we're talking about. You know, like those are more linear experiences, but they're still these big open world games that people are hoping you're going to play for months and months and months, not 10 or 20 hours. And even Watch Dogs had multiplayer stuff, right? Like, um, I don't know about Day Sex, but I know Watch Dogs had multiplayer functionality that was really highly touted because they wanted people to get involved in it in that way. Um, and then one of the other points he makes here is something that, um, you know, I, I regularly said that I don't agree with, but I think the way that he uh, posits it definitely, I think it, it makes some sense. So he says, story-based single-player games are also threatened by another recent development in the games industry. Um, I'm sorry, by another recent development that the games industry has, has to contend with, online video. Whether it's YouTube or captured gameplay footage or Twitch and live streaming, the ability for players to watch an entire game being played online for free hurts the commercial viability of this genre more, say, than multiplayer titles. Um, it seems undeniable that some people, and it may be a small percentage of players, but they do exist, see enough of a game on platforms like Twitch and YouTube and decide that they've had their fill, that they don't need to actually spend $60 on it. Sure, you could watch somebody play through Destiny 2's story campaign, but there's so much more to do in that game even if you do that. If you watch a full Let's Play of something like Uncharted 4, you've pretty much seen everything the game has to offer. Of course, plenty of players use these methods to get an idea of what a game is like before it act before... Of course, plenty of players use these methods to get an idea of what a game is like in action before buying, but major publishers like EA don't need that kind of marketing. So that's that's an interesting wrinkle. What, what do you guys think about that? Because I mean, we've talked on this show a lot about that kind of thing in general, and the anecdotal evidence seems to point that um, having fan-related content around your game uh, drives interest in the game, right? But when you're talking about someone like EA and a license like Star Wars... What do you think about that? What do you think about that as a thing? Like, the name recognition's there, right? Like, EA doesn't need YouTubers to push visceral Star Wars game. Yeah, like, I think the best sort of anecdotal evidence is I might have bought this game. I wouldn't have watched it on YouTube now. But tender 13-year-old me would not have been able to afford to buy Visceral's $60 Star Wars game at launch and definitely would have been all about new star Wars story content. And like I've watched metal gear solid cut into a movie because I couldn't play metal gear solid. And then, you know, didn't buy a PS three 
but I still got that story and later got to play it on my roommates. Um, so the the question for me though, yeah. right, is like I think because I I think what he's saying is is valid to a point, right? Like the idea that single player story driven games are more affected by this than multiplayer games. Totally right. Yeah. T- multiplayer games are experience focused, not story driven or emotion driven. But my challenge to that and to the example you gave is: Were you ever going to buy that? Were you ever going to buy a PS3 just to play that one game? No, probably not. But I, where I was getting is I wouldn't have bought this game. I would absolutely have watched it on YouTube as a younger man. Oh, yeah, but you're saying you wouldn't have bought it anyway. Well, so does that matter? Like, I would have waited and I would have bought it somewhere down the line. I would have, like, if I couldn't watch it on YouTube and I really wanted to get at that, like, big visceral story. Sorry, that was just too easy. Sure. It was the low-hanging fruit. Um <laughs> If I really wanted to get at that story, then yeah, I absolutely would have. Um, but though, then you also have the wrinkle of like, so you say you would have bought it late, but since you watch it, you wouldn't buy it late. But if you buy the game, if you're a physical game buyer, you probably would have went to GameStop and bought it secondhand anyway, and then EA wouldn't have seen the money either way. So I'm just playing devil's advocate to I, that position. I, I'll say this: I would have never, ever, ever, ever watch someone play a single player game and then buy it there's no way because i don't want any element of the game to be spoiled for me at all there's no way i would do that and i think that i think he's absolutely right in the sense that why would you do that why you wouldn't you wouldn't like watch half a movie on youtube or watch someone watching half a movie on YouTube and then go spend money at the movie theater to watch the rest of it. You wouldn't do that. You would watch it all on YouTube for free, or you would go to the movie and pay to see it, but you're only going to do one of those things. And maybe there are people who, you know, don't fall into that, but I would say the majority of people are like that because people are going to try to be fiscally responsible. And if the game is based on the story and you saw the story, you don't have to play it. So I, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. I I think that that's extremely logical, um, and that's that's absolutely something that that developers are facing. So again, I I, I think that that is logical, but I think it ignores a lot of the reality of people's viewing habits. Because I think to your point, like I wouldn't do that either, but I also wouldn't watch a let's play series of a story driven game that I wanted or intended to play. And again, like, I'm sure that there are some people who do that because they can't afford it or whatever, but I think it comes down to this thing for me of just like, but were you going to buy it anyway then? If you weren't going to buy it at launch and play it, but you don't care about spoilers, were you ever really going to buy the game? And if you were, were you going to buy it like at a cheaper price digitally so they actually saw some of the money? Or were you going to go buy a secondhand copy and then what you're doing is literally barely any different? You're, you're, I mean, you're asking a question that's impossible to answer, but I think that... Sure, sure. I think that there's no denying that people often, very, very often, take the path of least resistance. It's easier to just watch the game played out on YouTube than to go and buy it. And it's cheaper to do. If the if the ability sure. is there, again, another comparison to movies. If you could just sit and watch the movie in your house for free, this killed music, right? The, the ability to pirate music killed the music industry. Uh, films are combating this 
all the time trying sure. to stop piracy. This is a, a very similar thing. The only difference that I'll grant you is the player experience. The, yeah, but that's the whole experience of playing a game. Uh, okay, isn't it? hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, but if the if the experience is tied to the story and you already know the story, then the game can't surprise you. And if the game can't surprise you, then it, you're just playing it to play it. And at that point, why would you spend sixty dollars to have that experience? I I think it's like you're right because like the questions we have to ask to really get to the bottom of this are so like hypothetical and they're they vary person to person. But I think I, – I don't know that that's a great analogy because I think what you're talking about, like watching the movie at home, you're still watching the movie, right? And granted, you could watch a, a Let's Play or a stream or whatever and get the story of a game. But you're not getting the gameplay experience, which is the experience. And like, yeah, Andy watched the story of a Metal Gear game, but like the gameplay in Metal Gear is fucking awesome. Like that's a huge part of it. And like, yeah – you're spoiling the experience for yourself. You're definitely ruining it for yourself. But I think what you're talking about is way more akin to like, oh, I really want to see this movie, but I went on Wikipedia and read the plot synopsis and ruined it for myself, so I'm not going to go see it. Because you didn't have that experience. You ruined that experience for you. You know enough about it to maybe have a conversation about it, and maybe you still were able to get something out of that because you experienced the emotional beats of the story, and those will still resonate with you uh, if the story's good. But it's definitely not the same as you actually having that experience with the game. Especially if the game is uh, has good systems like Metal Gear 5. But right? but at the end of the day, the, the, it is, it's as simple as this. There was a time when you couldn't do that, and now you can. So sure. to think yeah. that that doesn't affect sales is naive. Of course it affects sales. There was a time when, like what Andy said, if he really wanted to play the game, he would find a way to get the game. Now, yeah. if, like, if he really cared about the story of Metal Gear, he had to play it in order to know it. Or ask a friend, but that's not the same because you don't get to see it. Now, right. there, are, there are so many ways you can experience it that don't involve you paying $60 that throughout the course of the game's life, there is no way to argue that it didn't lose money because of that system. And then you also have to consider the fact that people can buy it secondhand and all that other stuff. So, so there's no way that the game isn't losing sales. Whereas right, yeah. with with something like, I mean, just a fact, Call of Duty, even if you buy it secondhand, if you do microtransactions, they're still seeing money. Yes. They're still making money off that game. Yep. And I think the fact that uh, we've seen a real major decline in video game piracy is also motivated, motivated by this because a lot of these games are services, are games you need to be actively on a server and pinging the servers and everything. So it's harder to pirate them for sure. Um, where single-player games don't necessarily have that benefit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so again, just to, to clarify my position, um, I don't disagree with you. To say that, uh, that, that there isn't anybody out there who has been dissuaded from buying a game like this because they watched a, a Let's Play series is naive, and I don't believe that. I was asking these questions because I wonder how many people it really is. I wonder how many people fall into that same category of, I'm interested in this thing, and I would like to play it, but I would never actually play it. You know? And those, or whatever, are going to buy it so late that they don't affect the bottom line of the game anyway. But yeah, I'm not arguing that there's no uh, correlation there. I think the... The bigger point that you just established is that there are so many little things that take a drop out of the bucket. And when your game is incredibly expensive and created on razor-thin margins, there's no room for anybody to bail out for any reason at all. 
And especially when you look at the reality of the industry too, it's more crowded than it's ever been. You know, like there are how many amazing indie games that are story-driven games that come out every year that maybe fill your itch and you spend your 60 bucks on the big multiplayer game that all your friends are playing instead. And instead of buying, uh, you know, South Park Stick of Truth when it comes out or when it came out, you're like, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm playing Destiny right now. I don't need that, you know? Absolutely. And you get your fix for those story-driven games from shit like, you know, A Night in the Woods or Life is Strange or any of these other more middle-tier or indie games that come out, you know? Yeah, and, and I think that for myself, I definitely I definitely see the ways that's true in my own gaming habits because I regularly sure. engage with um, video and streams, etc., that are focused on multiplayer experiences. Like I, I, I watch tournaments for video games all the time and, right. and stuff like that. Recently, I was very, very curious about the Silent Hill series. And 10 years ago, I would have bought a collection for $40 and played them. Now, I went on YouTube and I watched a series of videos that tell you every single thing that happens in the game. Now I know it and I don't have to buy it. Sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's um, with the proliferation of fan culture and that kind of stuff. Like, there's just so many avenues for you to learn about something like that other than hands-on experience that just weren't as prevalent before. I won't say they didn't exist, but they existed in very different forms, right? Like, it's like, yeah, maybe you'd get a magazine where somebody wrote an intro, a retrospective about that series, and you'd be like, wow, I got a sense of what that's like. But that's not the same thing as, like, even looking at screenshots. It's not the same thing as, like, watching the big moments of the game or, you know what I mean? Like, there is a – you're able to get way more intimately connected to things without experiencing them. For sure, uh, in a way that was just never possible before. So, uh, any I don't know. I know this is like a huge discussion, but any like kind of closing thoughts on this before we wrap up? Um, yeah i I didn't really explain my like Atlas tax point earlier. I would like to go back to oh, that. Okay. Um, yeah, let's do it. It's the fact of the matter is that these are becoming more niche things like these big single player experiences. And I think that the only way we can keep getting them at a high quality is to keep, is to pay a premium price for it. Like I've bought several Atlas games at $10 more than the standard price point. Um, and honestly, I would have spent a hundred dollars on persona five. Like it was a regular $60 game, but I played it for a hundred hours. Hell, I would have spent $150 on persona five that's like what that experience was worth to me and i will pay more to keep having those experiences and i i think that's important you know and i I think the point that uh that was made in the article right that like the price of games hasn't changed in 12 years but the costs have only gone up that's that's gonna hit a breaking point it has to yep and we can sit and complain about loot boxes and season passes and always online and all games of services but like that's the industry is going in that direction for a reason and it's not just because of our tastes it's because of the reality of making games and like we're so quick to demonize publishers for making money without really understanding the realities of what it takes to make a game like that 
or any game for that fucking matter. Games are fucking expensive to make and they take years and years and years of development in a bubble and it's hard, you know? And like, we have to be willing to pay for the things that we want. And if we're not, they're going to fall away. Yeah. Um, also, for those of you out there who play like JRPGs and shit, buy them. Don't pirate them. Like, don't pirate games in general. But like, yeah, especially buy the stuff that's on the fringe that's like fighting to survive. Yep. Um, or or accept that you're not going to see it anymore. Yeah. Um, which like, there's more great JRPGs out there than I will have time in the rest of my life to play. But man, I want them to keep making them. Yep. And I think that's going to be partly on us to support the games we like and partly on developers to find new ways to deliver those experiences in ways that make sense. You know, like seeing Square pivot to give us traditional turn-based RPGs that are like pixely and indie-based. It's like, okay, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Those things are sustainable. You know, they don't need to take five years to make and cost $100 million. Yeah. Yeah. And as a closing statement, I do want to say that I – my view – on where this kind of thing is going. Um, I've, I've, we've talked about this before, and I think that I think that there's a way to make it work. Uh, but I'm not... I, I'm not... I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, because I think that there is a way to make it work. I think it's possible to make it work. I think we can get single-player experiences that are great. I think uh, Grand Theft Auto V... Um, reminds me of that in the sense that GTA Online kind of spawned from that game, right? But GTA 5 is there, and that is a fantastic game that didn't lose anything by having to include that multiplayer experience. It, it, it right. worked. And I think that that's Rockstar wanting to stay true to what they do best, but also facing the realities of the market. And as long as developers are willing to try and provide great single-player gaming experiences that also fit in with the realities of where we're at, then we can have great games. The Arkham series is a great series. Um, GTA is a great series. There are plenty of series out there that do do this. And so it's on them to keep working. And as long as they're willing to try, I'm willing to support those games that do try and do make great experiences for me on both levels. And people will show up for that as they have. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, one of the the last points I do want to touch on, I won't read anything, but from Samat's article is that uh, he makes the point that I think kind of the beacon of hope for this kind of stuff is um, that it's first parties, you know, is that Nintendo and Sony are not held to the same uh, – the, the the parameter for success for them is different than it is for a multi-platform game at a third party right where sony is making sony and nintendo are making games obviously they want them to sell but you know uncharted doesn't need to sell you know uh 10 million copies it sold like 8 million and that's a huge success for that game and when the goal of the game is to create great art that makes your platform a place people want to play because they're must have exclusive experiences, especially when you're talking about, hey, this genre is barely surviving and we're the ones keeping it alive. That is a huge incentive for people to play on your platform. And when your bottom line is not 
affected solely by the success of your first party games, that is uh that's a little more tenable. And that's why they can afford to put out a Horizon Zero Dawn, but you know, maybe Ubisoft can't anymore. And so Yeah. Oh no, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and then with Horizon, you get that great single player experience out of the box. But then they also provide you with more experiences throughout with downloadable content that I think now players, now that we've kind of reached where we're at with this uh, uh, games of services and stuff, players are softer on that kind of DLC. I'm softer. <laughs> we on sure that fucking time. are. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I think that that's fine because you get. Look, at the end of the day, you get the full game when you purchase it. Yeah. It's just additional stuff down the road. And I think that's totally okay. And just, you know, again, every developer with every game has to figure out the way it makes sense for them. And hopefully that's something that gamers can understand in the changing climate. I think I think that's a good point to end it on. You know, I think this is uh, obviously a developing story. I think we're going to talk about this a lot in 2018 as the rest of the games that have been inspired by Overwatch and the trends this year, uh, Destiny, are going to keep trickling out, right? Like, I don't think we're going to see the full fallout from this for another six or eight months at least. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see that pivot in the direction that we feel like it needs to go and that we'll see all the kinds of games that people want survive and thrive because I think... Uh, you know, trends are always going to happen. You know, we always cry the doom, the end of this genre, of this subgenre, whatever. But ultimately, the cream rises to the top. And if people really want these kinds of games, there will be developers, there will be creators out there who find a way to tell them. And uh, as long as we show up and support them, they'll keep getting made. So um, that's going to wrap it up for the discussion here on episode 26 of the Video Game Pals. Thank you guys so much for joining us here again. Um, if you guys want to connect with us, remember you guys can send us an email at the video game pals, uh, the video game pals at gmail.com, uh, hit up the comics pals at the comics pals, anywhere your social media is sold. And let's know what you thought about this episode. What do you think about loot boxes and games of services and the future of AAA, uh, single player games? Because, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear what you're thinking about this issue and, uh, where you think the industry's headed. And go out there and buy a new copy of Persona 5. So that single-player JRPGs keep getting made. <laughs> Do me a favor and go buy a new copy of Dishonored 2 or Dishonored Death of the Outsider so we can keep single-player, story-driven, action-adventure, combat games alive. Because that's what I like. <laughs> Do Sean a um, favor and like us on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah please. Uh, you know, Again, like us on your platform of choice if you're an audio listener. Uh, go bounce over to iTunes and give us a rating. If you're on YouTube, like the video. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Check out Pals Play Monday through Friday. Check out the, vid- uh, the video game, Pals. That's this show. Check out the comics, Pals. And uh, we'll see you next week. I love you. Take care, Bye, everybody.